Well, good evening. Merry Christmas to you all. We have uh, a tradition, as Joe said, here at New Hope of singing on Christmas Eve the, uh, which version is that of that song? The Bare Naked Ladies version. That incidentally refers to a band called the Bare Naked Ladies. Yeah. <laughs> and they're Canadian, and that, that sort of explains it all right there. The uh, Bare Naked Ladies version of, of that song that, uh, that merges into We Three Kings. And it's become a tradition for us to sing that, and so we do. It's also a tradition, as you may have noticed, if you've been through uh, any of the uh, Advent or the Advent scenes, the mangers, the creches, nativity sets, whether in your home or somebody's lawn or anywhere else, that you usually find there, by way of tradition, those wise men, right? Those three kings. But the funny thing about tradition is that tradition often enshrines what is not true. See, as it turns out, what we know about the Magi is somewhat limited. They really only show up in one passage in the Bible. We don't know, for example, even how many of them there were. Now, we, we read that they brought gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we don't know if there were two of them carrying all that or if there were 20 of them. We don't know if they were actually kings or if they were astrologers. We know they came from somewhere in the east, probably Persia, but could have been further off, could have been China, could have been somewhere in India. We don't know. We certainly don't know, as the later tradition developed, that their names were Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior. That was just made up. You may find that when people don't know what happened, they sort of make up something that sounds interesting and try to fill that in. What we know, though, for sure, is that they weren't there on the night Jesus was born. Here's the story in Matthew's Gospel. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together... She was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. 
Incidentally, you may have in your translations, we saw his star in the east. That would be a problem since they were coming from the east. So if they saw his star in the east, they would have made a very, very, very long and wet journey to Bethlehem. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet, in this case the prophet Micah, has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and um, worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they'd seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. When coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, in this case the prophet Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. Well, when Herod realized that the Magi had given him the slip, he was furious. He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with with the time he had learned from the Magi. And then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. And after Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. You think probably Joseph had a little notepad next to his bed, I think. He went and he lived in a town called Nazareth. And so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, which we don't know where this one came from, actually. He will be called the Nazarene. So when Herod issued the order to have all the little boys in Bethlehem and around that part killed, he had all them killed who were what? How old? Two years and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now Herod was really not all that extraordinary by the standards of his time, but today we would consider him a pretty bloody, tyrannical ruler. Uh, he did have a number of his family members killed just to protect his own throne. So he probably was being a little cautious. It probably was somewhere in the within two years time frame that the Magi gave him. But either way, 
what this tells us is that probably somewhere from a couple months after Jesus was born, because that's about as quickly as you could get to Bethlehem from Persia, to about two years after he was born, that's when the Magi showed up. And I did the math once with my nativity set, and if you would like to do the same with yours, you may, or you can actually ask either Lindsay or Nathan Hall, um, who know everything. Oh, Nathan has put his hand on his nose, so you can ask Lindsay Hall to work out the math of just how far away on Christmas Eve, or an Advent when you put out your nativity set, just how far away you should put the wise men. In our case, it was somewhere around Dundalk. And then you just sort of march them a little bit every day until they show up. Why am I talking about Magi? When, as many of you know, it bothers me to no end that the Magi are always in the stupid nativity sets. And I really, all due respect to our tradition here, I hate that We Three Kings song. Well, in this chapter of Isaiah that we're looking at tonight, chapter 52, what we find is a theme that in a lot of ways is fulfilled in the visit of the Magi. During Advent, we've been going through some prophecies from the second part of Isaiah. In chapter 52, Isaiah begins, Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength. Put on your garments of splendor, O Jerusalem, the holy city. The uncircumcised and defiled will not enter you again. The connotations of that may well be what you're thinking. Shake off your dust, rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem, free yourselves from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. This is a prophecy that is given to people who are in exile. God's people had been rescued, redeemed out of slavery by Him miraculously. And He set them up in a land where He was promising them that they would have security, that they would have health, they would have prosperity. And he was going to give them everything they needed for that to happen. Not only was he going to protect them for their enemies, not only was he going to bless them, he gave them his Torah, he gave them his law, he told them how they could live so that it would go well with them. The problem was, though, that if they didn't live according to his Torah, if they didn't follow his law, if they didn't stay devoted to him, that very land that was a gift and a blessing to them would become a curse, that land would vomit them out. And so it happened. And Isaiah here is writing at a time when the nation has gone through a civil war, when its northern kingdom has been captured and scattered by Assyria, and the southern kingdom has been carted off to Babylon. This nation that was called by God to be a light to all the nations. This nation that was going to be the vehicle by which God would bless the entire world, by which he would accomplish his work of cosmic redemption. This nation was in Babylon, but not actually in metropolitan Babylon. Sort of like if you say they were in New York, but actually they're in the Meadowlands. They were involved in a wetlands reclamation project, which is a nice way of saying that they were busy filling in a swamp. This is what the apple of God's eye had been reduced to. And so what the prophet says, Awake, awake, O Zion, clothe yourself with strength, put on your garments of splendor, is said to a people who are anything but strong. People who are clad in muddy rags, not garments of splendor. 
they have suffered any number of indignities. Their last king, in fact, saw his sons killed in before his eyes, right before those very eyes were put out. His last sight, last vision was that of his sons being killed. And you can imagine the kind of things that happen to a people who are conquered. Shake off your dust, Isaiah says. Rise up, sit enthroned, O Jerusalem. Free yourself from the chains on your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For this is what Yahweh says. You were sold for nothing, and without money you will be redeemed. This is what the Lord Yahweh says. At first, my people went down to Egypt to live. Lately, Assyria has oppressed them, and now what do I have here? declares Yahweh. My people have been taken away for nothing. And the ones who rule over them mock, declares Yahweh. All day long, my name is constantly blasphemed. Therefore, my people will know my name. Therefore, in that day, they will know that it is I who foretold it. Yes, it is I. What God is signaling here is that their fortunes are going to change. He is going to bring about a reversal. He is going to rescue them from the horrible situation that they find themselves in, not incidentally, by their own fault. How lovely on the mountains, God says, are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen, they lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When Yahweh returns to Zion, they'll see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together. You ruins of Jerusalem, for Yahweh has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Yahweh will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord. This is specifically directed at the priests, the priests who are now who are out of a job. I mean, if, you, if you, you don't have a temple, you can't be a priest. You can't do the things a priest does. The priest can only do in the temple. But now he's saying, get out of there. You people who are accustomed to touching only those things that are holy, that are devoted, don't touch any unclean things. Come out, be pure. And you're not going to leave in haste. You're not going to go in flight. For Yahweh himself will go before you. The God of Israel himself will be your rear guard. Well, that sounds nice. Except they're still under the thumb of one of the world's superpowers, Babylon. And they're still in a swamp. And this city Jerusalem that they used to live in has been reduced to rubble because it was besieged and finally defeated. How is God going to do this? Look, he says, my servant will act wisely. My servant will prosper. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. 
And just as there were many who were appalled at him, so his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man and his form marred beyond human likeness, so will he sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of, because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. What they have not heard, they will understand. And the rabbis had all sorts of fun trying to figure out just who Isaiah was talking about here. Some said that Isaiah here is talking about Israel, the nation itself. Others said, no, he's talking about, about David. No, he's not. He's talking about uh, this one king, the good king Hezekiah. Many of them said, yes, it seems like he's talking about the Messiah. This is how Maimonides handled this. Maimonides, one of the greatest of all the rabbinic sages, commenting on this passage, he says, what is, what is to be the manner of Messiah's advent? Where will be the place of his first appearance? Well, he'll make his first appearance in the land of Israel. Just as it's written in Malachi, the Lord whom ye seek will suddenly come to his temple. But as to the manner of his appearance, until it's taken place, you can't know this. So as for it to be said of him that he's the son of such and such a person, of such and such a family, there's going to rise up one of whom nobody has heard before. The signs and wonders which they shall see performed by him will be the proofs of his true origin. For the Almighty, where he declares to us his mind upon the manner, in Zechariah says, Behold, a man whose name is the branch, and he shall branch forth out of his place. Isaiah speaks similarly of the time when he will appear. Without his father or mother or family being known, he came up as a a dry root. But the unique phenomenon attending his manifestation is that all the kings of the earth will be thrown into terror at the fame of him. Their kingdoms will be in consternation. They themselves will be devising whether to oppose him with arms or to adopt some different course, confessing, in fact, their inability to contend with him or to ignore his presence. And so confounded at the wonders which they'll see him work, they will lay their hands upon their mouth. In the words of Isaiah, when describing the manner in which the kings shall hearken to him, at him kings will shut their mouth. For that which they had not, had not been told them, they have they seen. That which they had not heard, they have perceived. The massive irony in the story of the Magi is that the king who opposed this Messiah was none other than Herod himself, half Jewish, trying to pass for political purposes. And he was the one who was trying to have him killed. And there's a sense in which that's a small example of the bigger picture, which is that when given the choice between maintaining political power, maintaining domination and allegiance to the one true God, most rulers can be counted on to do the former. Yet at the same time, we have coming not from right in the neighborhood, but from all the way to the east, these magi, these wise men coming to look for the one who has been born king of the Jews. And the reason it's most likely that they came from Persia is that that's where 
the great prophet Daniel was when he had gone off with the nation into exile. He became the most trusted advisor in the entire court because he had proven himself to be wise and capable, someone who could interpret the dreams of the king. Daniel, in fact, became legendary for his wisdom. And it may well be that what Daniel left among the wisdom traditions of the Persians were what these wise men drew upon when they saw this extraordinary astronomical occurrence. Somebody, I think, over 400 years before that had told them to look out for something like what they saw, saying that this would herald the advent of Israel's Messiah. And in the picture of the wise men, whether they were astrologers, whether they were philosophers, whether they themselves were king, we have a picture of nations from the farthest corners of the earth doing exactly what the prophets said they would do, coming to Zion, giving tribute to the true king. You may have noticed people in positions of power don't like to do things like humble themselves, don't like to do things like kneel, to give away things of value. And this picture of wise men kneeling, adoring, worshiping, giving of themselves, this is a picture of what Isaiah is talking about here what so many of the other prophets talk about, where the nations come bringing tribute. Many of the rabbis, when they read Isaiah, saying that he will sprinkle many nations, read that as him scattering their blood, saying that he is going to destroy them so utterly that it's going to be like they're blown up to bits and you can't put them back together. Others say that that sprinkling has to do with his wisdom, with his word that is simply going to fall upon them like rain. But the church has traditionally read this as the kind of sprinkling that you had in the temple, the kind of sprinkling that you would do with the blood of the sacrifice in order to work out to effect the atonement the forgiveness of sins. And we read this not as Jesus scattering the nations, but as Jesus shedding Himself for their sake. Jesus making it possible for the uncircumcised and defiled to approach with boldness the throne of God. Maybe this redeems those stupid wise men and all the dumb divity sets. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we are grateful that you are able to accomplish your purposes despite us. We are grateful that you have been telling this story and you've been working out this story of cosmic redemption ever since it became necessary for us to be redeemed. 
We who are not of the nation of Israel are grateful that you have grafted us in. We're grateful that you have by your blood sprinkled us so that we may, with the wise men, kneel down and adore you. We pray that with them we would shut our mouths. We would give up any claim we might have to our own justification any suggestion that we might deserve to be there. Give us the grace to humbly receive the forgiveness that you alone offer. We ask this in the most holy name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.